why does the Stark Law exist? And basically, it boils down to the Stark Law is a billing statute. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to the first episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. And I hope that you will join me for the future episodes as we walk through issues related to the Stark Law as well as compliance-related issues. And my goal in this uh, podcast is not only to be entertaining, hopefully, uh, but also to provide education and a resource that you can use uh, when you're trying to educate others regarding the Stark Law and the other regulatory issues that affect healthcare compliance. Uh, obviously, there's going to be a focus on the Stark Law, but also I will be touching uh, the False Claims Act and the Anti-Kickback Statute, because usually these these fraud and abuse laws go hand in hand. And during the podcast, obviously, I'm going to be uh, talking a lot about the issues and, and the facts uh, that I know of uh, from my clients, but also... Uh, highlight certain cases. I, I seek to highlight uh, issues that are affecting uh, hospitals and other healthcare providers around the country. I hope to also have other co-presenters where we dive into not only the government regulations, the thought and the theory behind uh, some of the regulations that exist and how to operationalize uh, those regulations, but also uh, actual compliance officers who are dealing with these issues on a daily basis. And I also encourage all of you as listeners to provide your questions and fact scenarios that you would like to have discussed on Stark Integrity. If you just email me at my email address, it's Bob Wade. Captain Integrity at gmail.com. Again, Bob Wade, Captain Integrity at gmail.com. And then during each of the episodes, at the end of the episodes, I will provide usually three, what I'm going to call the Captain Integrity Punch Points. So these are the issues that, based upon the episode that I am working on, the, the takeaways, uh, so to speak, of the uh, things to concentrate upon. So obviously this one is going to be more of an introduction uh, to the Stark Law, why the Stark Law exists. And and a lot of times I get, the, I get that question from clients. They said, why does the Stark Law exist? 
And basically, it boils down to the Stark Law is a billing statute. And the way I try to explain this is that if you have a financial arrangement with a referring physician, then according to the Stark Law, which is a strict liability statute, and we'll talk further about what all that means, but because it's a strict liability statute, if you have a financial arrangement with a DHS entity and a referring physician, then that financial arrangement must must comply uh, completely with one of the Stark Law exceptions. And, and if it doesn't comply with one of the Stark Law exceptions, if you know about the noncompliance prior to billing, then you can't bill for any of the referrals of designated health services to the healthcare entity. And if you have already received reimbursement uh, from uh, Medicare and in some states Medicaid, and again, I'll talk a little bit about that in future episodes, but if you received uh, reimbursement, then that could be an overpayment that it, that you would have to repay. So at its core, uh, the Stark Law is a billing statute and contrast that with the anti-kickback statute, which is a criminal statute where there has to be specific intent to induce referrals. Uh, and then if, if the specific intent to induce referrals, the facts exist, then the anti-kickback statute is violated and obviously that is a criminal statute. So let's talk about the purpose of the Stark Law. Well, it, it primarily boils down to the fact that the government believed that if a physician had a financial arrangement, either an ownership arrangement or a compensation arrangement with a designated health entity, then there it could lead to overutilization. In fact, uh, you know, based upon a 1989 OIG report. They found that if a physician had a financial relationship with a laboratory, then that physician was 30 to 40% higher in their laboratory referrals when compared with physicians that did not have a financial relationship with a laboratory. So just focusing on laboratories, and the reason why I want to focus on that is that's how the Stark Law started. It started focusing only on laboratory services as being designated health services. Now I'll discuss it's actually uh, you know, mushroomed into something uh, larger. But at its, at its core, uh, the, the government really was not concerned about overutilization until 1965 when the Medicare and Medicaid program uh, were originated. And that's because prior to uh, 1965, the government was not a payer. And obviously, once the government became a payer, the government was more concerned about you know whether or not there was overutilization or fraud and abuse uh, to make sure that they were stamping out any potential overpayment by the government. And so, in 1972, uh, the anti-kickback statute uh, was first developed, and under the anti-kickback statute, targeting to healthcare uh, entities, it created a misdemeanor if the government could prove that there was an intent to induce referrals. And in 1977, so you can see the progression, in 1977, the government turned the anti-kickback statute into a felony. So the fraud and abuse laws as it related to health care goes, goes back to uh, 1972 when the anti-kickback statute was first uh, implemented. And obviously, as I stated, that it created a misdemeanor. And then we, in 1977, it changed it into a felony. 
it took until the late 80s until the physician financial arrangements and the theories behind the Stark Law uh, started to come up. Pete Stark, uh, who was a Democratic congressman from uh, California, Pete Stark actually was a chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And in 1989, Pete Stark had a quote uh, in a subcommittee on, on health, and he stated that the integrity of our nation's physicians is being threatened by seductive deals promoted by fast buck artists. Further proliferation of these ventures is bound to undercut public confidence in the medical profession. So basically what Pete was saying is that because of the financial incentives that are provided to physicians and physicians, their services were being paid for by the government through the Medicare and Medicaid program, that there was a potential for abuse. So that was in 1989. But going through the progression that the, uh, the Stark Law was passed in 1989, but it was effective. It was effective in 1992. But when it was passed, it was only uh, affected for laboratories, and it was expanded in uh, 1993. So let's. Turn to 1993 because I think that that's very important. This is when the Stark II uh, regulations were passed. And they were passed in June of 1993, and it really was a split vote uh, in, the, in the Senate. There were 49 Democrats that voted for the Stark Law, and 49 Republicans voted against. Uh, then Vice President Al Gore. Uh, he cast the, the deciding vote and voted for the Stark Law. So it was passed on June 25, 1993, and President Clinton signed it into law on August the 10th, 1993. And we call this the, uh, the, the Stark II because Stark II expanded from the 1989 statute from mere laboratories to a whole host of what they call designated health service entities. So for those of you who are from a hospital, basically anything a hospital performs or bills for is a designated health service. But just the list of designated health services are, in addition to clinical laboratories, physical therapy, occupational therapy, radiology services, and I just want to point radiology as both the technical component as well as the professional component, and in later episodes we'll talk further about that. Uh, radiation therapy services and supplies, durable medical equipment and supplies, uh, nutrients equipment and supplies. Uh, orthotics, prosthetics, and prosthetic devices and supplies, home health services, outpatient prescription drugs, and what I call the granddaddy of them all, the inpatient and outpatient hospital services. Uh, so obviously, again, to emphasize the point, anything that a hospital will touch actually impacts the Stark Law. And so all of the financial arrangements that involve a hospital uh, will need to comply with the Stark Law. And frequently I get the question, well, what about ambulatory surgery centers? Well, ambulatory surgery centers, as long as the complete reimbursement is from that ASC prescribed composite rate, then the Stark Law would not apply. But if they bill any designated health service separate from the composite rate, then definitely the Stark Law would apply. So that's the reason why physicians can own ambulatory surgery centers. What's interesting is the, the like I said, the, the law uh, was first passed with laboratories in 1989. 
1993 Stark II was passed that expanded the list. And really, it's, it's, it's a fairly short statute. But it took until uh, the first phase regulation, so what we call the phase one regulations, those uh, were effective in January of 2002. So again, I would just to talk about the history here, 1993 is when Stark II was passed, and it took uh, nine years for regulations interpreting the Stark II statute. And those regulations were about 300 pages in the Federal Register. And so the Phase II regulations, which further elaborated, uh, those uh, came about in 2004. And then the Phase III regulations came out in 2007. Every single time that the regulations came out, there were about 300 pages in the Federal Register. Uh, so if you just do the math, uh, you know, we're talking close to a thousand pages in the Federal Register with phase one, phase two, and phase three to interpret what is, you know, arguably a simple statute. And then throughout the years, uh, the regulations were tinkered with quite a bit uh, through the physician fee schedule. And, you know, now most recently is what we're calling the final rules. The final rules went into effect in January of 2021 this year, and which had a kind of the, mo the first major overhaul of the Stark Law interpretation since the Phase 3 regulations in 2007. And, and the theory behind the regulations is uh, the Stark Law, as long as it, we're talking about the interpretation or the repayment under the Stark Law, because it is a billing statute, again, I want to make that connection, because it is a billing statute, then the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, has authority over issuance of those regulations. The enforcement action, when a provider receives or intentionally violates the Stark Law and it bleeds over into the anti-kickback statute, then the Office of Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services, we commonly refer to that as the OIG, then the OIG has authority over the prosecution of those claims. But CMS is the department that has issued the series of regulations. And the theory behind the regulations is to establish a bright line. Uh, and even though that the government says that the intention here is to establish a bright line with, re with respect to the interpretation of the Stark Law, they're anything from my personal experience, anything but bright. I'll throw out just one, uh, one exception. I'll have uh, one episode just dealing with this exception is the non-monetary compensation exception. And so this is when a DHS entity, and I'm going to say DHS for designated health services, but when a DHS entity provides non-monetary compensation, and that word compensation, and I'll probably talk even one episode on what does compensation mean, but literally under the Stark Law, it means anything of value. If a DHS entity like a hospital gives anything of value to a physician, then that item of value is deemed to be a compensation arrangement with that referring physician. So let's talk practically. And this is actually a case I talked uh, about with a, a major health system under a corporate integrity agreement. They, this hospital system gave logoed coffee mugs to physicians on 
on Doctor's Day. There is a Doctor's Day every year. And so obviously a coffee mug has value. So the value of that coffee mug creates a compensation arrangement between that health system and that referring physician. And even though that a lot of times we would think that is just mere marketing from the government's perspective is if the physician is receiving a benefit out of that item or service, then that is deemed to be deemed to be compensation. So even if that physician takes the coffee mug and just throws it in his car and never uses the coffee mug, that coffee mug has value. And whatever that value is, has to apply to the non-monetary compensation exception, which started at $300 and through the cost of living uh, increases, which you can see on CMS's website, has increased over the years. And so it it doesn't say this in the regulations, but it's incumbent upon DHS entities to actually monitor the issuance of non-monetary compensation to make sure they don't go over the, the annual aggregate. So that's how bright line the CMS has tried to draw the regulations. But again, uh, you know, a lot of my consultation that I have with my clients uh, is is over the interpretation of these exceptions and to try to determine uh, whether or not the government truly meant what they said in the regulations or is, is there wiggle room because uh, not everything in healthcare is bright line. And so a lot of times, even by applying the Stark Law exceptions and you believe that you're fitting within an exception, you want to make sure that you are complying with an applicable exception that is targeting the specific compensation arrangement. By way of example, if we believe that we have an independent contractor arrangement, there's a couple of exceptions called the personal services arrangement exception or the fair market value exception that would apply to those. But if somehow the government believes, well, no, this is not a 1099 independent contractor, this is really a W-2 employee, then there's a separate exception under the Stark Law for employees, and they all have different requirements. So again, the, the compliance with the Stark Law is complex just because it has a simple basis looking at physician financial arrangements and trying to control those physician financial arrangements to diminish or eliminate overutilization. But in order to, for the government uh, to effectively control, what they're trying to do is to step in and to dictate what type of financial arrangements referring physicians can have with uh, DHS entities like hospitals and home health agencies and laboratories uh, and the like. And a lot of times with physicians, physicians would say, well, this is anti-capitalism. Well, sure it is. But, uh, you know, again, if, I, if you emphasize to the physicians, if you treat the Stark Law as a billing statute, the government being the largest payer of medi medical services in the country, because they are the largest payer, they can make the rules. You don't see Blue Cross and Blue Shield making these type of rules. They really rely on the government in order to make these type of rules. So the government, through the Stark Law, is dictating to referring physicians and also DHS entities, again, like hospitals, home health agencies, laboratories, physical therapy uh, centers, and the like. They're dictating what type of financial arrangements that they can have. And just very briefly, as we uh, come to a close of episode number one, uh, I throw throughout the terms uh, financial arrangements. And financial arrangements have two different classifications. They can either be a compensation arrangement 
or an ownership arrangement. And so you do want to make sure that you understand what type of financial arrangements you have because some of the exceptions apply to only compensation arrangements. Some of the exceptions apply only to ownership arrangements. And some of the exceptions apply uh, to both. With that, we're coming to the close of episode number one. And so now I want to give you the Captain Integrity Punch Points uh, for today. Uh, number one, foremost, is the Stark Law is a billing statute treated as such. It's not fraud and abuse until you actually bill inappropriately and retain that reimbursement. So number one, the Stark Law is a billing statute. Number two, the Stark Law was created in order to eliminate or reduce overutilization of medical services paid for by Medicare. So there's controlling physician financial arrangements with ancillary services, ancillary service providers, which is really mostly the focus on the technical component. And number three is a Stark Law through regulations has attempted to establish bright lines. Uh, in order to make sure that compliance, uh, CMS, through the regulations, has established bright lines with respect to their interpretation. So Captain Integrity, punch points number one, it's a billing statute. Number two, it was developed to prevent overutilization. And number three, the regulations provide bright lines. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.